Bibles up here this morning so you know we have something in store. So I hope you have at least one Bible. We're going to be using, um, really a couple of them are just to show you some stuff, but I think uh, we have a treat in store. Let's begin this morning with prayer. Well, we've already begun our morning. Let's continue our morning with prayer. Lord, a few things that I want to lift up this morning on behalf of this church family. I want to pray for Barbara Underwood and her family having lost her son this week. Just pray for comfort that can only come from you. Barbara is a treasure to us as a church family, and we grieve with her and for her and for her family. We pray for this void that has been left, that her family, her daughter-in-law or grand, grandkids, that they will um, fill that space with a new delight and a new trust and a new need for you. Lord, I also pray for Shannon's sister, um, having lost her newborn this week, uh, just uh, heartbroken for a, a brother's family and what they must be going through. Also, Lord, I want to lift up this morning another local church. I want to pray for Shady Grove Baptist Church. Um, pray for James Rawson and his wife, Deanne. Lord, I'm thankful for the ministry of Shady Grove. I'm not familiar with it at all other than uh, riding my bicycle by the church building a number of times over the years. And I think this is our first occasion this morning to have to, they have the opportunity to lift them up. Lord, I, uh, I pray that they are enjoying you right now. That they're gathering and preparing likely for 11 o'clock service that James is delighted, delighted with our Savior. Pray that you would guard him from uh, standing and delivering something that, is, um, uh, that he doubts. Um, I pray that he is fueled by this, this unbelievable reality that compels me this morning, is knowing that our preaching is not in vain. Because our Savior's tomb is vacant and he is seated and reigning and ruling right now. Lord, I pray that that will make for power in the pulpit. And Shady Grove Baptist Church, a little country church, will be equipped for worship and wonder this week. Thankful for the opportunity to lift him up. I pray for his marriage, Lord, knowing how easy how easily he can be distracted, likely, with ministry things that he enjoys and walks in, his primary ministry being to his wife. Thankful for the opportunity to lift up this church this morning. Lord, we pray that they won't have seating capacity for all the great things you'll do there. Uh, lastly, Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I pray that you would give me a pace or you would guard me from rushing through something that I could doubt. I'm thankful for the reminder this morning that our preaching is not in vain. So I pray for your pace this morning. I pray to stay right in step with the Holy Spirit as he equips us to enjoy Christ in us. We Turn this time over to you, Lord, and trust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Colossians. 
Colossians chapter 1 is where you can land. The Colossian church was started by a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras was likely um, living in Ephesus or visiting Ephesus at some point when Paul was planting a church in Ephesus. Paul spent three years there, and Colossa is close enough to Ephesus that uh, Epaphras was likely visiting or lived there. Well, Epaphras heard the message from Paul that God used Paul in a way to bring Epaphras to faith in Christ, and Epaphras then moved home to Colossa and started a church. Apparently, there was something going on in the church that prompted this letter. Most of our letters in the New Testament that Paul's written are what are called occasional letters. Letters They're written for a reason to deal with some sort of issue. And apparently, there was something threatening the Colossian church. Whether it was a false teaching or what, we, we don't know. And something that, that I enjoy and appreciate is guys that have spent their lives dedicated to studying the Greek language or to studying even maybe a book. They're guys that I read and study that may have their, their entire theological ministry may be studying a couple of books of the Bible. And guys like that are guys that I lean very heavily on to help me make sense of what's going on in a passage like this. And what they do in order to understand the problem or the occasion for a letter is they do what we would call extrapolation. They're looking at what is being said, and they have to extrapolate sort of backwards to make sense of, well, why was it said? Why was it written? Because it's not always perfectly crystal clear. So there are some guys that have done some work of extrapolation. I brought a couple of Bibles in here. One I'll, I'll deal with later. One is the ESV Study Bible. A lot of what I'm about to share with you comes right from the ESV Study Bible. And this is not... Uh, I remember before I was in ministry and I was sitting and hearing teaching and preaching out here, some sort of context information like, man, that's really nifty information. I wish I could add access to that kind of info. Well, you do. I didn't know that. Nobody helped me understand. You do have access. What I'm about to share with you about the Colossian context, I got out of the ESV Study Bible which you can buy. I don't know if you can buy it at the local Christian bookstore, but you can get it on Amazon. I see people nodding. You can get it in here in town, apparently. And that study Bible should be on every, I believe, on every person's, every family's bookshelf because it is that good. Okay, so that's, that's all I needed that for. Mine's leather bound. It's pretty high speed. It's really sweet because I use it all the time. So you can get them in high speed. Glove leather, I guess. I don't know pretty bad to the bone, but here's, let's, let's go to what, what's being, what was shared in my ESV study Bible. These guys believe that there was something going on in the Colossian church that prompted this letter. It could have been Gnosticism. I've mentioned Gnosticism uh, from time to time over the last few years. You can look that up if you're interested in seeing what, what's going on there. It may have been Jewish-influenced Christianity. That was the problem in the Galatian church, where they wanted to add something to grace. Let's add circumcision to grace, so grace plus works makes nothing. It destroys grace. So it could have been Jewish-influenced Christianity. Most likely what's going on, though, according to my ESV study Bible, which you can buy at the local Christian bookstore and have on your own shelf, is what's going on is what's called syncretism. Syncretism was a threat for the New Testament church. It was a threat for the people of God from the beginning, for Israel, from the neighbors, from the Canaanites, to the Hittites, and the Jebusites. Syncretism is the union or fusion of different systems of thought or belief. Really, it happens in some ways almost by osmosis. 
You're near these things, and before long, you start to adopt and adapt to these surrounding influences of surrounding religions, our surrounding cultures. What they believe was going on here in the Colossian church is that there was apparently some sort of threat that had to do with a local folk belief that tended to call on angels to help them and to give them some sort of protection in Colossae. It was likely tied to some sort of Greek or Roman pagan influence. And it's likely believed, it's believed that it's likely that a shaman-like person was within the church attracting a following. And this shaman-like person had set them up, set themselves up as some sort of a, like a spiritual guide within the church. He's likely encouraging Christians to practice certain rites or rituals as protection from evil spirits and for deliverance from afflictions. I can imagine how exciting something like that must have been in contrast to boring old Paul. I mean, Paul even confesses, I'm not the fanciest of speakers. I'm not the most interesting of guys. And then with a, game, with a, with a name like Epaphras, I can't imagine Epaphras was really going to bowl him over either. So they've got a guy, apparently, this shaman that sets, set him, set, sets himself up as sort of this spiritual guru, and he's offering some things that are likely sensational in a context that's not so sensational. I would suspect that whatever he's teaching, whatever he's sharing with this Colossian church, is that it probably sounded new and exciting and fresh and edgy. Maybe even it was completely different. Maybe it sounded ancient. Maybe he appealed to some sort of Greek and Roman ancient pagan rituals that sounded sort of vintage and cool. We don't know exactly what's going on there, but it's likely that he's pointing people in those directions because Paul addresses this church with this encouragement. He's concerned that the teaching that this shaman is sharing is that it's devaluing Christ and his finished work. That's what that sort of stuff does. It devalues, dilutes the potent value and impact of Christ's work as it's played out in the church. It in some ways threatens what Christ has accomplished and what Paul has already preached to Epaphras in Ephesus and likely what Epaphras brought back to Colossae. So Paul, as a response, could make an effort to out-sensationalize the shaman. He could make an effort to sort of take them to something more edgy, but Paul doesn't do that at all. We're going to see what Paul does for this church here in a moment. Instead, he takes them to something really very basic and something that's not very spectacular and edgy at all. He takes them to something that we've been considering for the last two months as a church family, union with Christ. Pretty, pretty spectacular, isn't it? Sounds pretty crazy. I bet between now and next, next week, you're going to be telling your workmates, man, I, we got this crazy new teaching going on at Cross Point Fellowship about union with Christ, and we're not going to have seating capacity next week. Listen, I get it. I get it. When I've read about union with Christ in the past, or it's been mentioned in the past, it's something that's just gone one ear and right out, uh, one, one ear and out the other. Because it doesn't sound exciting, it doesn't sound sensational, it doesn't sound new. But we as a church family in the last two months have come to enjoy what this means. So that's where we're going again this morning is to consider union with Christ. It's what Paul brought to a church in danger. 
It's what he delivers from the very outset, from the very first words in the, in the, in the letter. Colossians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The very first words from right out of the beginning of the letter, hello, you're in Christ, is almost essentially what he's saying, right out of the chute. Paul is giving them some medicine and some help here with the teaching about union with Christ. The Colossian church's unity and union with Christ means that they share in his power and authority. They share in his power and authority. So who needs angels is essentially what he's doing. Who needs that shaman? Who needs sensational? Who needs rites or rituals or things you can touch or smoke you can see or incense you can smell? Because you, Colossian church, you have Christ by your union with Christ. You don't need all that junk because you have Christ. Now, we're going to look at a paragraph in sort of macro, and then we're going to hone in on one particular verse. Okay, and I'm just going to spend a moment on this paragraph to sort of give us some, some context here as we close in on one verse. The paragraph begins in verse 24 of chapter 1, and it goes through verse 29. Let me read that. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, let me give you some bearings on this passage. Let me give you, help you with some context here. This passage is about Paul's ministry. Okay, it is about Paul's ministry. If you look at I's and me's and we's in there, you can begin to make sense of what's the point of this paragraph. I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm filling up Christ's sufferings. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me. And we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. That paragraph ultimately is about Paul's ministry. Okay? In general, not just to the Colossian church, but to all the churches. Okay, Now let's figure out who he's speaking about this ministry is for. It's in verse 24. It's plain and clear. I, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This paragraph is about Paul's ministry to the church. Okay, now... If you were to break this down, this paragraph, into sort of a sentence structure, the American language typically, or English language, how, how redneck was that? The English language <laughs> follows subject, verb, object, order, SVO, 
Greek does something a little different there. But SVO is the way we, the way we kind of speak. It's the way we write. It's the way we think. Subject, verb, object. So the subject, verb, object of this paragraph would be Paul is the subject. Minister is the verb. Or ministering is the verb. And the object is the church. Okay, I want you to see this. I prayed I'm going to be able to take my time with this. Because when it, sometimes when I get sort of strange looks back at me, I want to just hustle up and get through it. And I don't want to do that this morning. Subject is Paul. The verb is minister. And the object is the church. So the question you should be asking at this point. Okay, I got you on the subject. I got you on the object. He's talking about the church. But what specifically is the ministry we're talking about? What is Paul going to bring to bear for a church that apparently is struggling with some false teaching? Maybe this shaman, maybe this encouragement for some pizzazz, something edgy, something new, what's actually syncretistic. What is he going to give them to help them? What medicine is he going to use? That's where we're going to go in these next few minutes in verse 27. We're going to spend the rest of our morning in verse 27. Okay, I'm going to unpack the luggage in verse 27, and then we're just going to look at three ways that we can apply it. Okay? Verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let's unpack the luggage in this passage. First of all, them. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. To them, we can point back to the verse in front of it to figure out who he's talking about. He's talking about the saints. To the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. These are the same saints that he introduces at the beginning of every single letter, the beginning of the the Colossian letter here. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia. It begins in the, the beginning of Philippians, in Ephesians. To the saints in general. He's speaking of, to all the saints, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Them is speaking of the saints. Now this next phrase, how great among the Gentiles. Much of the context of the New Testament has to do with the reality that what had been previously for the Jews exclusively is now being inclusive of everyone else that's referred to oftentimes in the New Testament, as the Gentiles. Sometimes they're referred to as the Greeks. Okay, What's being said here, how great among the Gentiles is dealing with this context issue of how we should read our New Testament has to do with Jews. What has been for Jews is now also for Greeks and Gentiles. And a big part of the New Testament context is dealing with how God through Christ broke down a wall between two really different people, a Jew and a Gentile. So this phrase here is dealing with that. What had been exclusively Jewish is now including the Gentiles, and it's in no small measure, but the word here is it's in great measure. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Now, as to the mystery, what is this word here dealing with, this word mystery? The word means... In, in the scripture, it means a truth undiscoverable except by divine revelation. A truth undiscover, undiscoverable except by divine revelation. It's used in Ephesians all over 
the book of Ephesians. And since Ephesians is just right in front of uh, Colossians by a couple of books, I want you to turn over and look at a couple of passages. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 is one of those passages. We're doing some work here this morning. We're unpacking some luggage, and then we're going to use it together. We're going to do something with what we're unpacking. So I want you to do this work with me. Okay, I don't want to... There's no way I can make it easy for you. It's just going to be work, okay? It's not going to be terribly hard, but it's just work. We're going to make sense of what this word mystery is, how it's being used here in Colossians by looking at how he uses it in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Paul has been talking about wives and husbands and how they are to do life together, okay? And here in verse 31, he he writes this. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, there's that word, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He had been talking about men and women, real men and women in the, in, the, in the Ephesian church. People that would have been hearing these words and thinking about the woman sitting right next to him or the man sitting right next to him. And then he does this crazy little switcheroo on him and says, yeah, I am talking about them. But what I'm really getting at here is the mystery that's a profound mystery that's referring to Christ's relationship to the church. Okay. We're getting at the meaning of mystery here in Colossians. Now look at chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse, six, verse 19. Excuse me. Paul is asking for prayer. Really, we're, in this passage, we're going to get to the heart of how Paul is using mystery here in Colossians. He's asking for prayer, and in verse 19, he says, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He's using that word there in that context synonymously with the gospel, referring to the gospel itself. And if we put that together with Ephesians 5.31, the gospel, the good news, the mystery is Christ and the church and that union that is illustrated all around us by the union between a man and a woman. This homegrown illustration that's right in front of us. Either we've watched it as a kid growing up, or we're living it right now. This good news that he's referring to here is the gospel of union with Christ. This is how it's being used here in Colossians. This mystery that he's referring to is referring to the gospel. And look back over at Colossians, back at the passage, the focus passage of verse 27. I want you to see this. I know of no cleaner, more concise definition of the gospel than this passage, if you begin to read it this way. It's just so tidy. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. There's that word mystery. If you wanted to find what that gospel mystery is, it's in the next phrase, which is Christ in you. If somebody wants to say, man, what is the good news? What is the gospel that Paul preached? What's the heart of the gospel that Jesus was preaching? Christ in you is the gospel itself. That's how it's being used here in Colossians. This is the medicine that Paul is bringing to bear on this church that's being influenced by some sort of false teaching. 
It's beautiful, too, the use of the word mystery. The word here in this context would be, might be what would be called an open secret. Something that had been hidden for ages. Look at the verse in front of it in verse 26. It says the mystery, there it is, hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints. Those ages and generations worth of mystery that it had been hidden were 1,500 years of people groping after what we can see clearly now. 1,500 years worth of prophecies. 1,500 years worth of visions, 1,500 years worth of shadows pointing to what Paul is telling the Colossian church, you have in full right now. Man, they were groping at it. It's been hidden for ages and generations, but now it's fully revealed. And that mystery that, that this whole 1,500-year thing had been pointing toward is Christ in you. Man, you want to know what the good news is, Colossian church? You want to keep from being influenced by syncretistic type things, by pizzazz and edgy and new stuff? Man, just go back to write that. That's thing. 1,500 years of pointing toward that. Christ in you. You don't need that because you have Christ. And he is seated and he is reigning and he is ruling Now, we're not going to take anything for granted in the rest of this passage. Let me unpack a couple more pieces there. And this next phrase, this this thing of Christ in you, who's you? We've got to ask that question. Who's you in this passage? It's a difficult passage. I've read this passage a hundred different ways, a hundred different times. I've written it out, putting in Brad Cardwell as the subject, putting in me as the, I mean, the, the direct object. I've put in, there's a mall in Greenville so that all Greenville people can know about it. I've rewritten this thing. A million different times to figure out what in the world is being said here. Because I'm going to read it and I want you to be confused with me because I'm going to clarify it. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, who's you? Man, I hope you're confused with me, at least for the moment. And let me help you see that you in this passage, you go back to the title of the letter. This is the Colossian letter written to the Colossian church. You in this key passage, verse 27, is the church. The mystery and the medicine that he's giving to this church is the reality of Christ in you, the church, Christ in his people. This mystery, long kept secret for ages and generations, is Christ in the church. Not very edgy, not very sensational, but oh so true. 1,500 years pointed toward this reality that they are walking in, that we are walking in. And the result here in this passage of Christ in you, the church, is a hope of glory, the hope of glory. Now, again, we're not going to take anything for granted. You know, we could just read that phrase and move on. But I want to make sense of what's being said here. What's the carrot? What's the carrot of Christ in you? The hope of glory? Okay, that sounds really good. The hope of glory, does that mean the hope of me being glorified? The hope of God's glory? The hope of me going to heaven? What's, what's, what's being said here? Let's make sense of this. So we're going to look at just a few passages that are nearby to crack the code on the hope of glory. Look in the same book, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. This is the carrot 
of Christ being in you. That's what we're getting at in these next four little verses. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, this first passage gives us a little clue that this thing that Paul is encouraging the Colossian church with, of Christ being in them and that making for the hope of glory, is getting at Christ's return. Okay, getting at Christ's return. Let's look at the next, next passage. It's just a couple of pages over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, if we're going to crack the code on what this glory thing is, this hope of glory phrase, then we can go to other places that Paul uses that kind of language to make sense of it. And right there in the same book, in chapter 3, verse 4 of Colossians, it has to do with Christ's return. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it has to do with something that we've been called into. We've been called into this glory stuff. And we don't, I haven't even defined what this glory stuff is yet. Just call it a substance. We've been called into this glory substance. Okay? It's, God's invited us, invited us into something, to participate in something that has to do with Christ's return. Now turn over a page to 2 Thessalonians, or a couple of pages. It's just a page for me. Chapter 1, verse 10. If you're hanging in there, there's a treat in store. If you've bailed out, regroup, because you need this. I promise you. First Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Again, glory here apparently, the carrot of Christ being in us, has to do with Christ's return. And this passage adds some more detail of Christ and God being glorified in us. And the result being, the word there, that's just a great word, marvel. (laughs) Marvel. Look at the phrase. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. What a great word. Okay, we're getting at this hope of glory. The carrot apparently has to do with his return. And it has something to do with us being glorified in and with him. And the result being marvel. For all of us. I like the sound of that. Marvel. What a great word. One more verse. In chapter 2, verse 14. It's just a page over in my Bible. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To this he called you through our gospel. We already defined the gospel as Christ in you. That mystery that's illustrated by the union of a man and a woman, okay, at least, so that, for the purpose of, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very purpose of the gospel, the very purpose of the mystery of Christ in you is so that we may share in his glory. God's a sharing God. That ought to be good news to you. 
Now, I kind of rephrased this whole passage. I told you I wrote this thing 10 different times, 10 different ways, using every person and every combination of people that I could think of to make sense of what's actually being said here. And here's how I'm breaking it down. And I'm going to read from the message here in a moment. Maybe the second or third time in 13 years I've read from the message here, but it's worth, it'll be worthwhile. I'm imagining a conversation between God and his saints. And God says, hey, saints, I want you to look at how great among the Gentiles is my mystery at work. Okay, so the saints respond. They say, okay, God, thanks for showing us the great measure of the mystery at work in the Gentiles. Do you mind if we ask what the mystery is? And God replies, why, sure, saints. The mystery is Christ in you, the church, the hope and the plan of sharing in my glory. That's the good news. That's the message. That's what he's getting at in here in this passage. This is the medicine that Paul is bringing to this church. Now for the message. One of the things that I've realized is in preaching, I'm, I'm doing a couple things. I'm exposing a passage of Scripture, but I'm also exposing how to read your Bible and how to study even. So there are times where I want to point out a study tool like the ESV Study Bible. And there's a time that's a fitting even today to point out another study tool that you could consider having on your shelf. It's not very expensive. It's called The Message. It's written by Eugene Peterson, who is a faithful exegete of the Bible, meaning that he's faithful about exposing what's being said in the Bible. And he's written this Bible in terms that are easy to understand. In some ways, it's a paraphrase. It's more like a translation, but it's sort of a paraphrase to help you make sense of a difficult passage like this. Listen to how he phrases or how he writes this passage. This mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it's out in the open. God wanted everyone, not just the Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. The mystery in a nutshell is just this. I like Eugene's. The mystery in a nutshell is just this, Christ in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. The mystery in a nutshell is just this, Christ in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That is the substance of our message. He's... He's putting in his words what Paul has said. This is all we've got, Colossian church. That's all Epaphras has. I don't want Epaphras to go all edgy and all new and all sensational on you, Colossian church, because we've got all we need in this nutshell of a message. Christ in you in hopes of sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That's the substance of our message. We preach Christ warning people not to add to the message. No pizzazz necessary. Nothing spectacular needed. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. And he finishes up that paragraph with these words. That's what I'm working so hard at day after day after day, year after year, doing my best with all the energy God so generously gives me. The message has some use. It can help you make sense of a passage like that. 
A tricky passage like that. Who's who's who here? Who's saying what here? Here's the reality. Paul is ministering to this people, not with a light show or something spectacular, but with the mystery now made known, the open secret of Christ in the church. They don't need angels. They don't need the next new edgy idea. They don't need the next new experience. They, by faith, have participated in the greatest mystery that has ever been told and ever been revealed that for 1,500 years was shadowed of Christ in the church as the plan for sharing in his glory. This is what Paul toils in. If Epaphras is faithful, this is what he toils in. If Ben McGraw is faithful, it's all I got. No light shows. Nothing edgy. Christ in, in you is the medicine. Now, three things I think that we can walk in, three things that we can connect to. What, you have to ask the question, what does this mean for us? Has this just been an academic endeavor where we collected some data? That's not a terrible thing, but this is so much more than that. I'm more than a speaker, and I'm more than a teacher. I'm a preacher, and I'm calling you to walk in something. So what can we walk in? There are three things that I would offer. We don't have any shamans threatening the church that I know of. There's always the potential, though, of syncretism. There's always the potential where we could look for something edgy and spectacular and new or ancient and vintage and cool. We always have that danger. So what are some things that we can connect to? First of all, I would say this first one has to do with heaven. Heaven is a conversation that we have with our children. It's a conversation we have with each other. It's a conversation that you, a thing that you hear, should hear from the pulpit because it's something that's important. And here's how this reality of the good news of Christ dwelling in the church connects to this reality of heaven or to this, this matter of heaven. Christ dwelling in us is the hope of heavenly bliss. Christ dwelling in us is the hope of heavenly bliss. He himself is the voucher. Not an experience. Not a signature in the front of your Bible that somebody may have written at some date that you made some sort of decision. I don't discount that as nothing. But I'm going to tell you right now, if he's not in you, you don't have the voucher. He himself is the voucher. He himself is the promise of heavenly bliss. He himself vouchsafes. Look that word up after church today. It's a verb. He himself vouchsafes our future presence in heaven and eventually the new heavens and the new earth. He himself is the promise. He himself is the voucher. I'll share a quote with you, and we're going to develop this a little bit more. This is from John Calvin. He said, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, And we're separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. We also in turn are said to be engrafted into him and put on Christ. For as I have said All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. Man, he himself is the hope 
of heavenly bliss. Not a decision. Not an experience. Not a certificate. He himself. Now the second application point has some connection to the first. Really all three of them overlap. That one's talking about heaven, some of this future reality, future promise, future hope. This one has to do with earth here and now, this time around, the old earth, and how it connects to our lives here. And I want you to think about it in terms of a question that in some ways will be diagnostic. Do you think of Christ as mostly for you or in you? Do you think of Christ mostly as for you or in you? If you think of Christ as for you, you're not wrong. Okay, but that's only part of it. If you think of Christ as for you, then you view him as one that is mediating for you. You should, because he is. If you think of Christ as for you, then you think of the beautiful reality that he died for you. Man, that's good right there, right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. You think of the reality that he paid for your sins. He defeated death for you. Think of anything that he's done for you this week, and you're thinking about how he is for you. That's not a bad thing at all. We should be thinking about and enjoying how he is for us. But here's the reality. It's a tragedy if you only have this view of him being for you and not also in you. I'm going to use an illustration now, and I want to be very careful about it because we have, at least as of last week, we have a new member that's an insurance agent. Be very careful. What you think about this, though? A great insurance agent, which I bet Robert is. A great insurance agent is mindful of your needs all the time. Now, sure, he's got another life, but you can imagine an insurance agent that's also omniscient, omnipotent. You're always going to be on his mind. Okay, if he's great, he's mindful of how to protect you and how to even maybe help you save some money. He's mindful about how you can help save some money on health needs and life and death needs. He's aware of your life and thinking about how he can help you do life. It's good having a good insurance agent that is for you. But the problem with viewing Christ that way and only that way is that like the insurance agent, you might find yourselves only calling on Christ when you need him. Like State Farm, he's there. Man, I'm glad he is. But that's tragic if that's all he is for you. When you've had an accident or when you have an upcoming need, you need to account for, you need to plan for. When you have some health concerns, dear Jesus, help me. Consider how you pray. That's a great diagnostic tool. How do you pray? Are your prayers populated with accidents? Are your prayers populated with needs? Are your prayers populated with injuries, health issues? Nothing in the world with praying about those things. I want to encourage you to do that. But if that's all they are, then you might be in the place where you just see him as for you. And you don't yet see that beauty of him being in you. 
man, I think we have a tutor right in front of us. Paul took us to it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. This mystery I'm talking about here, that I've been, you think I've been talking about men and women? Marriage, husband and wife? I've been talking about Christ and the church. I think that mystic union is what it's called there. That Ephesians 5 union helps us understand how he can be also for, or for us, but also in us. I want you to think about marriage this way for a minute. Think about a marriage, if it's, uh, what a marriage would be like if you were only for one another. What would your marriage be like if you only took care of one another and you provided for one another? If you only cooked for one another, cleaned for one another, worked for one another, brought home the bacon for one another? Those things are good, right? I don't want to discourage any of those things. But if that's all it was... Were you just there for one another? I would hope and I would pine for something more than that in your marriage. If you're just for each other. I know a marriage ceremony. I know how they go down. I've done a few of them. There are lots of fours in a marriage ceremony. For better or worse. For richer or poor. In sickness and in health. Those are great fours that should be celebrated but there's also a union in and with one another. There's a connection that goes just well beyond meeting one another's needs. Take that for Christ and now think about Christ being in you and you in him. And consider that a healthy marriage, a beautiful marriage involves not just being there for one another, but also involves delighting in one another. That might be a hard notion for some of you. Know that you don't have to be stuck in that place either. There's hope for your marriage where you don't have to just live for each other. But you can actually delight in one another. That's what our marriages are supposed to illustrate. This delighting in one another. This enjoying one another. This experiencing one another. This mystic union between a man and a woman illustrates the union we're to have with Christ as we do life together. There are times where I, in the last few years, I'm ashamed to say it's only been in the last few years. Christy and I are coming up on 21 years of marriage, but it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really, I feel like, begun to really enjoy who Christy is. For those of you all that have been married for a while and you hadn't gotten there, there's hope. I hope it doesn't take as long as me. But in the last few years, man, I enjoy who she is. There are times where I'm looking at her and I'm looking at her thinking oh, she's the other part of me. I cannot imagine life without her. I feel like I'm looking in a mirror that's a whole lot prettier. <laughs> Somehow, like we're, we're part of each other. That's what this gets at. There's so much more to Jesus than him just being for you. Man, I hope that, I mean, it's taken 21 years or however long for us to get to that point in our marriage. But man, our Christian walk, there's hope for our Christian walk too. If your Christian walk is just about what he can do for you, there's hope that maybe a message like today and time and the spiritual disciplines of reading and praying and hearing the preach word week after week that he can bring you to a place where you begin to read the Gospels and it's more than just collecting information about how he's for you, but you're reading the Gospels going, look at how beautiful he is.
Look at how he handled that situation. Look at his tender care for a blind man. Man, I want that for y'all. For those of you that have it, you know what I'm talking about. Where he's more than for you. But he's in you. He's your groom. This mystic union we're talking of today is something that's not a pie in the sky. It's something that's right there. Consider how you pray. Consider how you read. Are you thanking him for his care for you as a good shepherd? And not enjoying who he is as the good shepherd? Man, pray for that. Lord, condition me that my prayers are not just populated with the fours, but they begin to be populated with just who you are. I want to enjoy in this prayer time as a family or this prayer time as an individual, as you're praying on, by yourself driving to work. Lord, show me something beautiful about who you are that I can enjoy you just for a moment. Because you're worth being enjoyed even apart from the fours. You're worth being enjoyed just for even just for who you are. Think about how you read, actually enjoying your Savior. Look how he moves when he's pressured by the Pharisees. Look how he teaches his disciples. How delightful is he? How graceful is he? Look how he walked the Via Dolorosa. Dragging a cross. Look how he was like a sheep before shears, silent, when he could have called down a host of angels to his rescue. Look how beautiful. Look how wonderful. I think that's enjoying him just for his sake. B.B. Warfield is trying to speak to, write about, the differentiating between his being for you and his being in you. This mystic union over here, vice, what his benefits are. Here's what he says. To wrest these two things apart and to make separable gifts of grace of them evinces a confusion in the conception of Christ's salvation, which is nothing less than portentous. It forces from us the astonished cry, is Christ divided? And here he basically implies that, of course, he's not. The reality of those two things being intertwined, of his being for us and his being in us, and seeing those things equally compels us to point afresh to the primary truth that we do not obtain the benefits of Christ apart from him, but only and with his person, and that when we have him, we have it all. We have his benefits. Man, this is what Paul toiled and struggled with all his energy, powerfully working within him to minister to this church. This was his medicine. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the good news. He's done a lot of stuff for you. And he will do a lot more stuff for you. But the better part of that is he's in you. You're in union with him by faith. And you'll be caught up in glory with him, sharing in his glory. I'd like to have our men distribute the elements as we deal with this third application point. So, men, you're not interrupting me now. If y'all want to go ahead and come up and distribute those elements, band, y'all can go ahead and come on up.
We're condensing our, or combining our supper into this third point. There's a beautiful application here for the church. The first had to do with heaven. The second had to do with the earth here and now. And how you actually view Christ. How you view this relationship with him. And the third has to do with the church. Just application for the church as a whole. (coughs) Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I want to read to you. It's because you don't need to turn there. I'm, I'm reading it just to make a point. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let me tell you something right now. We don't have to have any more development of this understanding of you and Jesus thing. Because we come by that natural. And I don't know if it's because we're um, Western American, we think, we're good at thinking about I. Now, what I read, the reason I read that passage is because I want you to know that's okay. It doesn't mean you're vile. If you're viewing a big part of your relationship with Jesus as me and Jesus, Paul said that very thing right here. It's okay. There's a very real application of you and Jesus. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, moved into you at the point of conversion. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Okay, you're not vile if you're just thinking about, or if, if, you're, if you're thinking about Christ in you and your relationship with him. Okay? I bet for the majority of this morning you've been thinking about you and Jesus. That's okay. Okay? I want to set you free in that. But this passage is saying something so much more. See, what you may not have realized, what you may not have noted, is as you read this passage, chapter 1, verse 27, here's how this thing should read if you're taking the, 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 the... What's actually being said there? To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glorious of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You is not speaking of you singular in that passage, though, as I just read in Galatians, it could, it could, but right here he's talking you plural. The mystery of Christ in you, the church, the hope of glory. That's what's being pointed out here as the medicine. Christ among you, the church. Man, Paul is very intentional about saying how Christ loved him and gave himself up for him. There is certainly room for an intimate and personal relationship and a mutual indwelling between the worshiper and Christ. We shouldn't ignore that. It's true. It's glorious. It's awesome. But Paul is expressing here a corporate reality and a corporate wonder He's talking about corporate indwelling, Christ in y'all, to put it in Greenville terms, the hope of glory. Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. Christ in the church is the hope of glory. We are the means that he is using to usher in his plan for Christ's return. That hadn't hit you yet. I'm going to have you do something here in a moment where you're just going to see how crazy this is. We are the means he's using to usher in his plan for Christ's return in the end of the age and the consummation of this story. 
if you need a purpose in life, which I do, I'm going to just tell you right now, I'm driven by purpose. A purposeless day drives me crazy. I need to have some kind of meaning and purpose. If you need that like me, how about that right there? That you, the church, are the plan for the consummation of the age of Christ's return. If you need a purpose and identity, how is that for a worthwhile purpose and identity? To see your role and your place in the church. I haven't been talking about figurative church. I'm talking about local bodies of believers, the church. Man, that's a great reason for worshiping, living, and telling, and declaring. And that's a great reason for being a churchman. A churchman. I remember the first time I ever heard that word, I just kind of didn't like the sound of it. It sounds kind of weird. But the more and more I study the scriptures, the more and more I see that Christ dwelling among us, the people of God, is the hope of glory, then I should love the church. Not just because I'm one of the pastors here. Because I was loving the church long before I was a pastor. Because I'm seeing that's who he's come to save. He's saving the world by saving the church. And the church is the hope of glory. Man, if you want a reason to be a churchman, there's a good reason to be a churchman. And somebody that loves the local body of believers. I want you to do something for me and indulge me. I want you to look around you at those around you. Don't just look at your spouse, Key. Look at other people, too. <laughs> look, look at other people. Just, just indulge me. Just look around. And, like, really kind of look around you. It's easy for y'all are sitting over here to look at these guys and for y'all to look over here. But y'all can all look at these guys and y'all can look at these guys. And everybody just kind of look around you for a minute. And I want you to realize something. As you're looking around you, I want you to realize that the people you just looked at, you and they are the plan for God's glory. Y'all, we're the plan for his glory. Christ in the church is his glory plan. And if you're like me, you're thinking, Lord, really? (laughs) I mean, I know who I just looked at. And I know that a lot of them are looking at me right now. Really? I mean, I love these people. I know their frailties and they know mine. We're the plan for your glory? Wow. That's crazy. It seems like being God and all that you can come up with a plan that's more predictable, with something that's more predictable, that's more certain, that's placing a great work on the likes of us. Something better than place, placing such an important work on the likes of the people that we just looked at. Can you imagine what the Lord's Supper would have been like for the guys that walked with Jesus for three years as he's spending John chapters 13 through 15 telling them about what all is about to unfold, his glory plan, and they're looking around the room at one another? You mean, Peter? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Peter's looking across the table at James and John who are vying, arguing for who's going to get to sit at Jesus' right hand. Sons of Zebedee, and that's the kind of stuff. Their mom, they got their mommy to come talk to Jesus for them. I mean, they're his glory plan? Seriously. Man, there's a note of irony to this reality. 
that God would take the foolish things to confound the wise. That he would take the likes of us to be his glory plan. And it could be something that you could even think, man, I just I can't even believe that. But I've thought about these disciples. I'm convinced in this three-year ministry, as they're walking with Jesus, there must have been times where they're walking down a dusty road in the middle of the night or late in the day or something, and nobody's talking for a minute. Jesus isn't teaching in parables for the moment. And they're thinking to one another, really? This is his plan? We're his court? His royal court? Wow. That's pretty funny. Man, something I want you to realize is that God could speak from heaven and declare a message with a big LCD screen, a big cloud-formed LCD screen, and share his message. He didn't need any of us. He could just, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He could tell the whole story. And then we just believe, and then we're caught up into heaven. He could paint it and tell it in a way that would be pretty awesome, but he didn't do it that way. He didn't do it that way because he's ordained the church to be that message of hope. You and me. You and me, a motley crew, like the disciples sitting around the table. We together are the hope of the world. If it sounds unimpressive, I think you're right on the money. But that's how he moves. Born in Bethlehem, in the fullness of time, in ancient Palestine. Of all places, ancient Palestine has a ministry that's 30 years long, 33, really a three-year ministry, but he walks on earth for 33 years. Walks. Didn't ride any cars. No nice cars. And when he did take a ride, it wasn't nice. It was on a donkey's colt. He's washing his followers' feet. He's calling those followers, happen to be the least likely to succeed, fishermen and tax collectors. And he's riding a donkey's colt into a town that would later crucify him. If you're expecting something impressive and spectacular, you need to go back and read the Gospels with a new set of eyes. We're it. We're the hope of glory. That's how he's planned it. That's how he's ordained it. So we're going to take this supper. I need some elements here, by the way. Did you already distribute them? Everybody's got them? Okay, I need mine. Y'all give me a second. Because we're going to sit around the table like the motley crew of disciples around the Lord's Supper. And just really honest. We don't need spectacular. We're walking in his plan. And this is his plan. We're his plan for glory. So let's together just delight in that, marvel in that, and let's take and eat. Let's together take and drink. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for our time together this morning. I'm so thankful that we are walking in an open secret. God, I pray that just even for a few moments this morning that we were caught up in something that is profound, realizing what wonderful riches we have in Christ now. 
I pray that we can exhale and just be satisfied for the moment, not needing anything spectacular or edgy or new, but we can just be completely satisfied with Christ being for us and in us. God, I pray that we will just teach us, train us to delight in Jesus, to enjoy who he is, even more than his benefits. To want to want to walk with him. Lord, I'm thankful for this time. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in song.